Hello and welcome. I'm Jill Dix from the ACAS policy team, and today we're going to be talking about conflict at work as part of our Future of Work series. The podcast follows a stream of work we've been undertaking at ACAS on managing conflict effectively. And in particular, we're going to be looking at new work we've published on the cost of conflict. I'm very pleased to have the authors of this analysis with us here today. Professor Peter Irwin is from the University of Westminster and Professor Richard Saundry is from the University of Sheffield. Peter and Richard have worked closely with ACAS's excellent research team to complete this important study. I'm sure it's no surprise to hear that ACAS plays an active role in supporting employees and employers as they face dispute resolution journeys. This includes providing the right skills to address conflict informally through to helping organisations set up formal procedures. And ACAS is also there where cases progress to the tribunal system, offering the chance for parties to reach a mutually agreeable settlement with our conciliators. So conflict resolution is very much of ACAS's business and the cost of conflict is an important consideration for everyone as we design the best dispute resolution system for the future. So I'm going to hand over first to Peter to tell us a little bit more about findings on the cost of conflict. Thanks, Peter. So each year we estimate that conflict costs around £28.5 billion for companies, employers, in the UK, and, and this averages out to about £1,000 per employee. If we just focus on the proportion of employees around nine, just under 10 million employees who report that they experienced conflict in 2018-2019, that's about £3,000 for each employee. So this is, this is a large cost, but remember that 1,000 figure is spread over 28 million employees. So we'll perhaps unpick a little bit the fact that in some companies that that average figure of a thousand pounds is going to be much higher um, and in some companies a a lot lower. Well first of all Peter and Richard a great thanks from ACAS for this piece of work uh, to put costs to this area of conflict that's so central for ACAS's concerns and its mission is really important and I'm really grateful to you for doing the work and the CIBD for sharing some data for allow this to happen. This overall figure is quite stunning that you've cited of 28.5 billion. But I was thinking about the 1,000 per employee and what that might mean to organisations. Say for businesses where maybe they have a very low investment in their staff or they're on very low secure contracts, is is that something to worry about, 1,000 pound a year? I think think one can look at this two ways. If, If you take a small business, that say employs, I don't know, let's say 10 people, and you say, well, you're, the, the cost of conflicts on an annual basis £10,000. To a small, for example, a hospitality business, that's actually a lot of money. So I think I, I think one needs to take that into account. I think the other thing, as Peter said, is that £1,000 isn't distributed evenly. And one of the things that the analysis shows very, very clearly is that costs really start to escalate when things start to go wrong. If issues aren't dealt with at an early point, if if good quality conversations aren't had between managers and staff, then you the costs potentially start to go up very quickly. As soon as you start to have things like absences as a result of conflict, as soon as you start to invoke formal procedures, and that can have a significant impact on things like well-being 
and engagement of staff. So that starts to have a negative impact on productivity. So when we look at that overall average figure, a thousand pounds perhaps underestimates the real impact for an organization. Going back to my smaller, for example, hospitality organization I was talking about a second ago, if a conflict between two members of staff, for example, is allowed to escalate, that can have a really catastrophic impact in a on, on a smaller business. Just to kind of follow on from that, I mean, one of the obviously the headline figure matters. Um, we, we want to give some idea of the cost to employers in the UK, but I think Richard's kind of detail of this is very important. One of the key ways that we've gone about presenting this work is to be very transparent. So we want to give employers an idea of where these costs come from, if they are genuinely keen on becoming better at managing conflict and trying to reduce that, that cost that, we, that we've estimated is, is eminently avoidable, how do they go about that? And, and one of the key things that we find, which we'll, I'm sure we'll pick up in a second, is you know, when resignations and, and dismissals start to happen, that's when costs really balloon quite significantly. But also in, in Richard's example, even if somebody doesn't resign or, or, or is dismissed, you know, this idea that companies will think, oh, well, there's, there's nothing, there's no problem. I can't see any re resignations, dismissals. But that idea that in the report, we've got presenteeism, and we've got various forms of anxiety, depression, which translates into sickness, absence. These have an enormous impact on, on companies. And the hospitality sector is a good example because you know, the quality of the human interaction with customers is so important and conflict really impacts upon that. Yeah, I definitely think that conflict makes you feel differently about the way you work, the way you relate to your colleagues yeah. and customers in service service industries. I'm, I'm thinking about um, informal resolution as a really important goal. Where do you think employers and unions should be putting most of their effort in order to reduce the kinds of costs that you've identified in your analysis, but also allow people to have that access to the entitlement to enforce their rights if they need to? So I suppose I, I, I'm concerned about, whilst I'm fully supportive of the informal resolution, obviously, is the way forward. Not It shouldn't be to the point of eclipsing people's opportunity to express their rights. Where do you think the efforts need to lie next? Well, I think I think organisations, generally speaking, um, have procedures in place to deal with issues that arise in the workplace. So to deal with conflict if it escalates. So those procedures are in place in the vast majority of, work, of workplaces. Whether they are actually applied appropriately or effectively, I think, is a key question. I think one of the things that we'd say is that the skills of managers and potentially HR practitioners in bigger organisations to make the, to make decisions and informed decisions about when to resolve things informally or perhaps when things should perhaps go down a formal route is is very important. I think a lot of problems tend to um, are made much worse because actually managers and HR practitioners and those people who make these decisions are simply not sure what to do. So they might avoid making a decision, they might avoid addressing an issue altogether, and therefore it escalates or it goes or it's sort of swept under the carpet. But as we've seen from our analysis, even when issues are sort of not too visible, 
you still have a range of really negative impacts, both the individuals involved and the organization. So having those formal procedures and policies is still very important. People need to have routes through which they can enforce their rights. However, once you've got that as a basis, the bit that I think organizations are really missing on is having the capacity to resolve things at an early point. A key part of that is providing managers and in particular line managers with the skills to have high quality conversations. And I think in too many workplaces, uh, those skills are not provided and those line managers don't get the support and the time. And if you like the, the environment where they're encouraged to have those sorts of conversations. Uh, and finally, just to add another thing in there, you mentioned trade unions. I think the other issue which uh, is very important, particularly for bigger organisations, is developing really good relationships so that I think where conflict management works well is where you have high trust between managers, between trade union reps and employee representatives and HR practitioners, because that enables you to have sort of off the record conversations and discussions, which enable you to create much more uh, effective resolutions and to avoid the sort of defensiveness and negativity that can creep into workplace conflict if you don't have uh, trust between those key stakeholders. Yeah, just to perhaps add, add one bit, I mean, the, the kind of companies that Richard's talking about and, and which ACAS, you know, will be engaging with are companies that are perhaps have got challenges, but are looking to, you know, do better. There is, and then this kind of responds to your point about individuals having, you know, roots to rights. There are some companies out there that are not trying to do better, that are, you know, we often call them, they're taking the low road. Um, they're, they're kind of assuming that they're going to have a very high turnover rate. They don't treat staff particularly well. That's their business model. You know, formal procedures and, and formal statutory obligations are very important to ensure that um, just in those companies to have those minimum standards is, is very important because I think, you know, there is a need to think of different companies and different kind of categories of company and some will not be trying to do a good job in those industries. I think that in addition to sort of harder regulation, I think there's, a, there's quite a lot of potential in sort of softer forms of regulation. So, for example, you're seeing in a number of particularly urban areas and metropolitan areas, you're seeing the development of things like good employment charters. I mean, Greater Manchester is a good example of this. And that involves things like commitments to paying the, uh, the real living wage, but also it involves helping organisations develop the skills to manage some of the issues we've been talking about more effectively. So ACAS, I think, are working with the CIPD up in Manchester and with the local authorities there to try to develop what they're calling softer skills for hard times. And I think that's that's a route through which you can start to change attitudes in some of these sectors where perhaps the argument to invest in conflict management capacity is a bit more difficult. Yeah, I think the, char the charter work that we're seeing across a number of urban areas is it provides potential, so a more holistic approaches to good work. 
we've all talked about the value of the trade union. We've talked about the HRO. But it seems to me that quite a lot is landing on the shoulders of the line manager. And whilst I understand the conflict competency point and we put a lot of effort in ACAS to actually support line managers in, in this job, in this part of their job, importantly, do we now think that too much is resting on the shoulders of the line manager in terms of conflict management? It's a, it's a really, really good question. And I know that when I talk about this in amongst groups of managers, sometimes I've been criticised for sounding like I am, uh, you know, being critical of managers. And then that's the, that's the last thing that, 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 that I'd want to be, because I think managers have an increasingly difficult job. Um, I've been really struck over the last few weeks when we've been recording webinars and doing podcasts like this is almost every single employment issue in the workplace comes down to the line manager. So, for example, the CIPD have been having a big drive, very rightly, on flexible working. And again, the, the role of the line manager has been highlighted as being absolutely critical. And it places huge amounts of pressure on that line manager. I think there's, a, I think there's certainly a, a, an argument to say that um, rather than HR devolving everything to line managers, when things become more complex, particularly in relation to formal process, I think there's a question mark about whether line managers actually should necessarily have the responsibility for dealing with things through formal procedure. But where I think line manager uh, involvement is absolutely critical is in those early informal stages. I think one of the interesting things about the survey data on which a lot of the, our analysis was based, is that as well as line managers potentially being involved in conflict, so conflict escalating from a conversation between a line manager and employee, is that employees tend to see line managers as the most likely source of advice or guidance if they get into a problem. So line managers are in this really interesting, quite very complex, but critical position. So I think line manager skills are, are, are vital but I think I would much rather, if you like, um, define the area of line managerial responsibility a little better and make sure that they're given time and space to do the job properly. I think at the moment we're in danger of asking line managers to do virtually everything around people management, both the informal bit and the formal bit. And I think that's probably too much. OK, yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting. It's not so long ago that we worked together and um, we're looking at strategic conflict management systems. We don't seem to be talking about that quite as much as we were. And I'm thinking about the role of the line manager was definitely one of the ingredients in the recipe of strategic conflict management, where there was a basket of options that organisations were developing. But I'm wondering where it left the board and leadership. And whether now we think that leaders and businesses take conflict seriously enough. And I'm even beginning to think less about strategic conflict management systems, but thinking that strategic conflict management engagement is actually the precursor for anything. So I suppose I'm wondering about the line manager and then the broader picture of the board or the councils or groups and where uh, senior leaders, where they see conflict sitting. I think it's it's interesting to bring in a part of the literature and, and a definite change in uh, perspective over the last few years in terms of that kind of difference between strategic management and operational management. So traditionally, 
you know, in a broader sense than just conflict resolution, business schools have taught that kind of leadership, strategic management and so on. And there's been a there's been less of a focus on the day to day operational management, what you know, people management skills, dealing with the kind of process of trying to align the employees that you're managing their their kind of uh, activities with what the company wants and you know it's easy thing to say but it's a massively complex and often seen as the kind of day-to-day it's it, not dirty as such but really quite challenging and not as glamorous as the strategic big you know big ideas uh broad brush approach and so on so for me i think what myself and richard have definitely been focusing a bit more is this idea of just skilling up operationally managers now obviously they need they need to be in a context where ideally the company has very clear a strategic approach to conflict resolution but ultimately even in contexts where they're not they can do something to make the situation better yeah that's the kind of big and the small piece on it i i'm I suppose my question remains, and in a sense, I can apply it to your business school scenario, whether conflict is included in the business school curriculum for for senior managers and whether you think overall that conflict management is taken seriously at the most senior level in organisations. No, it's not. I mean, you know, that's that's the reality. Mm. In most organisations, conflict doesn't even isn't something that's even discussed or talked about. Um, And I hopefully I think that's one one valuable contribution that the research on cost of conflict can make because I think that if you can put that financial estimate on that then potentially you can get organizations and senior leads and organizations to start to take notice um leadership leadership is something which which people you know aspire to uh, and saying, well, actually, what you need to do is you need to uh, develop the skills to manage conflict just doesn't sound quite so interesting. It doesn't seem, you know, it's not quite so exciting, um, but it's actually critical. And I think if you compare the UK to the US, and there's a lot of problems in the US and the US labour market, etc. But one thing where they're certainly ahead of us is on conflict management. There's all sorts of reasons for that. But if you go into an Ivy League school in in the you know one of the big universities in the states and you're a, you're doing an MBA, you will do conflict management, you you know at a reasonably high level. And it, and the fact that we don't in the UK is seen as quite strange. Um, so I think one of the things that I've noticed in the in a lot of the research that we've done together with you and your colleagues, Jill Acas is that where things work really well, quite often there is a leader or there's someone very senior in the organisation who happens to get get the idea that conflict is really important to organisational performance and the well-being of their employees. And the reason why they've got to that point is quite often happenstance. It's quite often because they've had an experience themselves or they've been involved in an organization where there was a particular occurrence where something really bad happened and that made people take notice there's very little sense in my view still that conflict management is seen as um as this key part of organizational strategy 
and that conflict is seen as an inevitable part of organisational life. And I think I think that does have to change. And hopefully the work that we've done is a small contribution to changing that. Yeah, I, I hope it is as well. I think this is going to be very useful. Um, I wonder if another way of uh, turning the tables, if you like, is to begin to think about whether conflict is always bad. And in my view, conflict, productive conflict that's well managed can open the door to change in a way like no other driver could. And I was wondering if you've got evidence or what your own thoughts on that proposition is. I think um, perhaps starting, it's worth uh, reminding that the, the kind of headline figure of 28.5 billion is our estimate of the conflict that can be avoided. So that, you know, without going into uh, massive detail, it's, it, it assumes our approach assumes that some amount of conflict in the workplace is inevitable. And, you know, again, without getting into the semantics of what do we count as conflict and so on and so forth, it's ultimately that not everybody arrives to work completely bought into every part of the corporate ideal. They have bad days, good days. The company, you know, clearly desires some kind of activity from the individual employee and the manager sits in the middle of that. And, you know, in a very general sense, there is some amount of potential conflict there or, or misalignment, you could even call it. And the manager has a key role in in trying to make sure that, you know, employees do, even when they don't come in completely bought into the day's work, that they um, uh, kind of do align with the company and that uh, everybody has a good workplace and a productive workplace. I think as well, uh, from my perspective, I think there's a slight a slight danger here, which is linked to, to our last last point of the discussion about organisations taking conflict seriously. And I think there's a bit of a danger that we talk too much about conflict as a positive, that that gives a little bit of a cop out to organisations in terms of addressing it. Um, and I hear quite often organisations saying, well, no, conflict's a positive thing. We like to encourage it, it's creative, and therefore, you know, we, we, we don't need to, you know, get our hands dirty with with, with some of the more day-to-day -day aspects of, of, of managing that of managing that conflict I think you need to be really careful so yes creative tension is a good thing uh, being able to disagree in a meeting is a good thing being able to raise an issue is a good thing however where conflict is unresolved and it's not addressed when people raise issues and then that's ignored by the organization where you have a a discussion with your lively discussion with your manager and then your manager takes some action against you rather than working with you to resolve the issue that is never going to be positive there is a bit of research on this and where you talk about interpersonal conflict the research tends to suggest that resolving that conflict can be positive can have a positive impact but the overall the overall impact is going to be a negative one and talking of um scenarios in workplaces that are particularly troubled we've troubled we've seen quite a lot in the last few years over very deep-seated problems around uh, that affect both workplaces and society actually around safe for instance sexual harassment or racial discrimination and in fact you know looking at some of uh, your analysis one in five do nothing at all about conflict that yeah. they experience 
And I'm wondering if workplace conflict management approaches can address some of these very deep rooted problems or whether the solutions lie somewhere else. I think the solutions uh, are multifaceted and certainly there is a need for wider societal change. But I think the organisations can certainly do something about these things. Um, I think we talked about upskilling managers. And one of the things that managers don't have necessarily, and I'm not just talking about line managers, I'm talking about senior managers, I'm talking about HR practitioners. They don't necessarily have the confidence to deal with some of these issues. And so where you have a really clear-cut example, for example, let's say sexual harassment in the workplace, I think too often in organisations, those issues are fudged. People try to sweep them under the carpet. They, they create cultures where people don't feel confident that uh, they're going to be listened to or that, that the issue is going to be addressed. And I do think that comes down to two things. I think one is the managerial confidence that we were talking about earlier so that people can have good conversations with people, but also can have the confidence to make good decisions. And I think that's important, knowing when to perhaps take a more formal approach, I think is important. And I think having conflict management systems, if you like, where there are there are clear routes to raise issues. Let's take the health service, Jill. I mean, I know you're familiar with the sort of freedom to speak up guardian approach that is used in the NHS. And that's a great example of where that works well in concert with other processes, procedures, with HR, with trade unions, can provide a culture where people can raise some really serious issues and they and they can be addressed. But having those multiple channels through which people can raise issues is, a, is an important basic concept within conflict management and something that I think a lot of organisations could replicate. Yeah, we've seen examples of fair treatment offices in other organisations and uh, resolution offices as well, where, where individuals can go to raise particular concerns. Indeed, I've been involved in the pan-sector organisation associated with speaking out. And you are seeing some really interesting examples of organisations that are looking for clear routes for people to speak out. So just a final, a final point, really, Richard and Peter. I was looking back to the 2014 publication, the Oxford Handbook of Conflict Management, and I was looking at the chapter that, in fact, we contributed, Richard, which identified the factors associated with conflict and I noted down the recession 2014, the competitive emerging economies, uh, the downward pressure on public finance and also we speculated about more rigid performance management and curiously concerns around absence and I'm wondering from both of you really what's changed, what's the same and what impact in fact do you think the pandemic might have had on the nature of conflict that organisations face? So I think the impact of COVID is really interesting in relation to conflict. I think th there's very little doubt that potentially uh, COVID and the pandemic, and, and as we're coming out of the pandemic and perhaps people are moving back into workplaces and organisations are trying to find their feet around more flexible approaches to work. I think there is the potential for a significant <laughs> increase in conflict, or certainly that provides an environment where conflict can potentially escalate. And I think a lot of the things that we've been urging on organisations during this discussion in terms of training managers, making conflict a strategic priority is going to become increasingly important over the next over the, over the coming months and the next couple of years.
as we hopefully move out of COVID-19. However, I think on the other side of the coin, there is some evidence from some some sectors, and certainly I've been doing some work in 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 the in the NHS during the pandemic. And there's been some evidence there of sort of in, increased camaraderie of people working together and perhaps perhaps actually putting differences to one side and working through conflict in a more sort of productive and effective way under under huge pressure. And while the NHS is probably the most extreme example of that. I think there might have been some lessons learned in organisations, both in terms of what people are capable of in terms of working together and working effectively. But I think also in terms of the importance of people. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, conflict is not necessarily taken seriously as a strategic issue is because people management isn't taken seriously in many organisations as a strategic issue. It's certainly going to be that there are more people working at distance. And I think there's I mean, there's there's lots of challenges there. One can imagine that there is potentially more room for misunderstanding when we've got electronic communicate, more electronic communication or more communication at distance. One of the things that we've uh, I've been looking at in recent kind of uh, diversity and inclusion work in the context of the pandemic is the extent to which you know how, how do you have an informal chat with your manager when actually wandering into their room or catching them in the corridor is not possible everything seems a little bit more formalized when you have to set up a teams meeting or a you know a, a zoom or something like that so i think there are that kind of conf conflict or myth uh, opportunities for misunderstanding at distance uh, are greater but ultimately people are, are having less interaction as well so it, it could go either way okay thanks for that so we sort of heard some interesting uh, dynamics around shifts we might see and, and as well as a window where we might see value and purpose change in the way businesses look at themselves and look at their objectives as well as Peter says on ways of working, all of these things uh, coalesce around the potential for good relations and conflictual relations. I think we've had some great insights today and there's an awful lot more conversations to be had as well as exciting new research for us to carry out together. So um, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank, thank you very you. much for having us. Yeah, thank you. It's been great. Thank you for listening to the ACAS podcast. If you'd like more information on our research on the cost of conflict, please find the links in the episode notes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.